Genesis chapter 16. And as you turn there in your Bible or flip there, scroll there on your phone, I'll, I'll just share with you guys a quick story. Uh, the story about a climber, right? He tries to scale this mountain. And, and as he's going up the mountain trying to reach the summit, he, uh, you know, loses his footing. He starts to slide down the uh, side of the mountain. And as he's sliding down, he's frantically reaching out and he grabs a hold of this branch right before he goes over the edge. And, and this branch is attached to a tree, but this tree is very, you know, it was pretty pathetic. As he's holding on to it, the, the tree starts to buckle. And he, and he realizes, you know, if, if I don't do something soon, I'm going to fall over the edge. And so he, he looks down, he looks around, there's, there's nothing else that he can do. So he finally looks to the sky and he says, is there anybody up there who can help me? And so he hears this boomy voice, you know, from, from heaven saying, well, if you just let go, I'll save you. So he's, he's looking at the tree buckling and he's looking down, he sees nothing there. He's like, uh, is there anybody else up there who can help me? <laughs> he, he, he doesn't trust that voice, right? And so while that obviously is a, you know, not a true story, it tells kind of a true feeling that we all hell have when we have are in situations that are challenging, that are trying. Uh, number one, we look to somebody who actually sees our situation, who knows what's going on in our life. You actually see the predicament that I'm in. Then not only do you see the predicament that I'm in, but can you do something about it? You know, uh, can you change our circumstance? Can you rescue me? Can you save me? Can you fix this or that? And so those are kind of the themes that will be part of this message this morning. And it's always good that, you know, you and your church every Sunday morning, you guys incorporate in worship just a prayer. This, you know, I've heard many times, and you probably have too, that, you know, our prayer life really shows our dependency upon God. You know, another way to rephrase that is that, uh, you know, infrequent prayers that we have really show that we really trust ourselves. And the more we pray, the more we trust God to do things. It can be something simple as waking up every morning or doing XYZ routines, or it could be something complicated as, Lord, please deliver me from this cancer or whatever situation at work that I'm dealing with. And so do we actually pray and depend upon God? Well, this morning, I kind of want to encourage you, encourage you, and this will be the main point of this message this morning, encourage you, encourage myself with this phrase, trust the sovereign God who sees you. Do not trust your own limited abilities or understanding. And I'll keep on repeating that throughout this sermon. And I'll say it again. Trust the sovereign God who sees you. Do not trust your own limited abilities or understanding. So this morning, this passage in Genesis chapter 16, we're actually going to talk about it a narrative, a, a story. And although this is one individual story, and it's part of this broader story, this, this, this grand narrative that God has for all of humanity. You know, sometimes people use the you know, big word like meta-narrative. What's the meta-narrative of the Bible? All that really means is just what is the overarching story that God is telling throughout human history, right? Uh, it kind of begins in chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, where it says, in the beginning God, so... God was before all things, because before time, God was always there and he will always be there. And so it goes on to say, in the beginning, God created. So God created all things. And so that begins kind of the story of, of where 
uh, everything we know kind of jumps in. And so you got the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Then when you get to Genesis chapter 3, you know, the, the plot kind of thickens, right? Uh, it, gets, it gets a little bit more interesting because mankind, through Adam, falls, you know. They said that they rebel against God through Adam. And so, but God makes this promise that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And so there's that promise right in the beginning of the fall of mankind that, hey, this, this, there's more to the story. This, their salvation is going to come, right, in Genesis chapter 3. And, and, and as the Bible unfolds, you get more understanding about this promise, about this Savior uh, who's going to come crush the head of the serpent. Uh, when you get to Genesis chapter 4, you know, you, you get this tragic story of Cain and Abel, where, you know, uh, they're, they're two brothers, and, and there's actually a bit of jealousy with the oldest Cain to his younger brother Abel, and, and God actually warns Cain. He actually gives him a warning. He says, sin is at the door. This desire is for you. And that's just a real warning for, for all of us with sin. Sin, no matter how small it is, it's, it's never tame, you know. Sin always wants to consume us, to devour us. Don't ever give in to it. Well, Cain obviously gives in to it, he, and he murders his younger brother, Abel. You know, in Judas chapter 6, we move on, get to the story of Noah, Noah and the ark. You know, I got my wife and I, we have a son named Titus. He's a little over one and a half, and in our house we have a couple of books about Noah and the ark. And so in every single book, what's, you know, what's the focus of the book? The focus of the book is the animals, right? You know, and, and Titus goes through, like, names the animals. Well, he does animal sounds rather than names the animals. And so that's, that's, that's kind of like the focus of his understanding of Noah. But, uh, you know, we haven't really talked about judgment, <laughs> death, destruction, and <laughs> salvation. But that's the real message of Noah in the Bible, really. You know, you've know, you got the ark. You know, you know, that's salvation, putting towards Jesus Christ, saving humanity. But then you also, you know, why do you need salvation? Because there's judgment. There's judgment coming. Judgment fell on the people in Genesis chapter 6 with the flood. So you move on from Genesis chapter 6, then you get to finally Genesis, Genesis chapter 11. Uh, that's the story of uh, the Tower of Babel. And so, uh, you know, way back with Adam and Eve, you have the creation kind of mandate to go, uh, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And that was before the fall. And then we get to Noah. After the fall, he, he gives that kind of command again, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And then we get to uh, the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, and mankind's like, you know, uh, let's just stay here in one place. And they say, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's, let's make a name for ourselves. And so they start building a tower all up to heaven. And so God says, you know, I, you know that's not what I commanded you. And so he confuses the people with language. And so that's Genesis chapter 11. And as you go a little bit further towards the end of chapter 11, you get introduced to this guy named Abram, uh, the same guy with, that we now know as Abraham. This is before his name was changed. And so it's Genesis chapter 12, right? Get it. Abram, and God actually speaks to Abram. Abram's 75 years old. Now, now I'm going to say Abraham and probably Sarah instead of Sarah because that's easier. But I just realized that this was before their name changed. But God speaks to Abraham and he says, leave everything you know, leave this land and come follow me in a distant land, in the land of Canaan. Um, Leave your extended family, leave your culture, everything you know, follow me. I know you just now heard my voice, but follow me. And so Abram, Abraham takes his wife, Sarah, and they leave, and Lot and a few others I go with them. 
they get to Canaan finally. So just fast forward a little bit, a couple chapters, you get to Genesis chapter 15. I know we're finally getting, trying to get closer to Genesis chapter 16, right? Here's just chapter 15. Abraham is in a predicament, right? He has no offspring. He has no children. And so him and his wife, they've been barren for a long time. Okay? They've been barren for a while. So Abraham was already 75 when God first speaks to him. They make it to the land of Canaan, and they still don't have any kids. And Abraham brings this before God. He says, God, I know you're powerful. I know you're the Lord, but can you really help me out here? You know, I don't have any offspring. We really want a child. And so God makes this covenant, you know, kind of like a relational contract with Abraham that he will bring about a son for him, that that son will come through him and Sarah. So that's this great promise in Genesis chapter 15. Actually, their offspring would be so numerous, you won't be able to count them. And so then we get to Genesis chapter 16, and, and the kind of you know, the, the plot thickens again. And so this is where I'll read the passage. Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah raised, or said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, and may it be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. When she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your, to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring, so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Ber Lahai Roy. It lives between Gadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar born Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. There's a lot going on in this passage, right? The plot really thickens. And so the beginning of this story, you know, Genesis chapter 16, it kind of really reflects almost Genesis chapter 3. All right, so 
in both chapters, Genesis chapter 3, you know, that's the fall of mankind. You have Adam and Eve. And then in Genesis chapter six, 16, you have Abraham and Sarah. Genesis chapter 3, God, you know, had already made a promise. He made a promise that Adam and Eve, that you can eat of any tree in the garden, eat of any tree, except for this one. And when you do eat of that tree, you shall surely die. Genesis chapter 15, going into 16, God had made a promise to Abraham and Sarah, and saying that, hey, I will provide for you a son. I will make it happen. In both instances, both couples were deceived, were kind of, you know, wanted to make their own way happen. And in uh, Genesis chapter 3, you have obviously Adam and Eve. Uh, they, you know, come up with a plan. Hey, let's just grab this fruit. Let's take of it. Let's disobey God. And you have the same thing happen with Abraham and Sarah in 16. Hey, uh, God is not really making things happen. Let's take things into our own control. Let's, let's figure out a way to have a son. In both chapters, you know, you, you have Adam and Eve blaming each other. Adam first blames God. Hey, the wife that you gave me, she's the one who messed things up. And then, you know, God talks to Eve, and then Eve blames, you know, the serpent. In Genesis chapter 16, you got, uh, you know, again, when Hagar gets pregnant and things aren't working out, you know, you know, Sarah starts blaming Abraham. Hey, this plan that you came up with, which, by the way, she came up with a plan, but it's like, hey, this plan that you came up with, it's, it's going south. You know, what's, what's going on? And then, obviously, you know that things do not turn out well in uh, both situations. So it's almost like a mirror of what already happened in Genesis chapter 3. Now, talking with narratives, right? You know, just time out. Just, just hold on for a second, because whenever we talk about narratives, especially narratives and stories that we know extremely well, you know, we know how things go. You know, we kind of put ourselves in the righteous person's spot, you know. We say, hey, I would never have done that, you know. Clearly, <laughs> clearly they should have trusted God. Clearly they should have done X, Y, Z. If, if that were me, I would have done things differently. Most of the time, that's how we read the, the narratives. We never put ourselves as a bad person the guy, or the person who makes the mistake. You know? uh, now, if I were up here, or if you were up here, reading the narrative of your life since childhood, right, all the way up until now, it's obvious that we would recognize the mistakes that we've done. We did not always choose to make the wisest decision. We did not always do the right thing. We were not always the righteous person. Forget about just childhood to now. I just did the past five years. And so what I, the reason why I'm bringing this up is just recognize this whole situation that they're going through. Yes, we should be critical of it, but also be critical of our own lives. You know, don't always fall into the trap of saying, hey, I would have done things differently. All right, back to the story. Things don't go well, right? Hagar gets pregnant. Sarah gets jealous. Sarah mistreats Hagar. Abraham is passive through this entire whole event, just like Adam in the garden. So Hagar can't take it any longer, and so she leaves. She flees Abraham and Sarah. I reiterate, again, the main point of this text, the main point of this message this morning, is to trust the sovereign God who sees you. Do not trust your own limited abilities. My first point this whole message, right, is this. You can trust God because he is sovereign. Sovereign meaning that God is in control of all things. Every single thing that happens in this world is like God is in control. You can trust God because he is sovereign. 
and his plans cannot be thwarted. But obviously our plans can be. Our plans can be messed up, can be thwarted, but God's plans cannot. Trust God because he is sovereign. You kind of see God's sovereignty even in the beginning of this passage. In chapter, or uh, verse 2, you see that even Abraham and Sarah recognize this. Sarah mentions that, hey, God has closed up my womb. She, she recognizes God's sovereignty, like, that his hand is in this situation. That God's the one who closed my womb. He's the reason why I can't have a kid. But then also, they don't really trust God's sovereignty. Because right after that, they're like, all right, so let's come up with a plan to have a kid that's outside of God's plan. Maybe God really wants us to do X, Y, Z instead of A, B, C. These things aren't working out. What's, what's at conflict here? You know, their expectations of how God should bring about his promise. Their expectation is different than God's plan. And so let's stop for a minute and really think about the, the pressures that Abraham and Sarah were, were, were under. One is that, you know, they were old, all right? Uh, there's nothing wrong with being old. I hope to get old at some point. But they were old. They were in their 80s, right, at this point. Probably about 85. So this is before, you know, they actually have... Uh, Ishmael, 85 years old, and time's not looking great at 85. They're like, all right, got to have this kid. Things are, hey, let's hurry this process up. What's, what's going on here? God's, God, don't you realize that time is ticking here? As a matter of fact, time's already probably ticked, right? You know, you know, they're past that stage. And so it's like, all right, what's, what's, what's going on here? Also, the pressure of, they've been following God for at least 10 years. At least 10 years, they dedicated their life to God, and things were not going the way they thought that they should. So I'm, I'm sure, you know, the Bible doesn't really say this, but I'm sure it's like, hey, we've, we've done all these things. God, can't you pull through? Can't you do this for us? Then also, there's also the cultural norms. All right, so in this, you know, ancient Near Eastern uh, uh, kind of um, civilization, you know, it's thought that God blessed you through children, that you're blessed through children for, for a couple of reasons, different reasons, because everything, all the wealth that you own gets passed down to your offspring. And if you don't have any offspring, it gets passed down to other people, either other distant cousins or distant relatives, or even someone who's not even part of your you know, blood family. And so, but then also, it's, it's, it's kind of like a retirement plan. Obviously, they didn't have retirement plans, pensions, 401k back then. And so, back in that time period, your children were your retirement plan. You know, that's why many times you see in the Bible where the oldest sibling, I'm the oldest, right? You know, you know, they get a double portion. Yes. They get a double portion of inheritance, right? But that double portion, you know, the reason why they get a double portion is that part of that double portion is so that you can take care of the family. And not only take care of yourself, but take care of everybody else because you're the, now the leader of their family once the patriarch dies, right? So now you need to take care of everybody. Well, they don't have this retirement plan, you know, they don't have any kids. So there's that cultural norm. I, I, I know it's probably different where, you know, nowadays you probably think that, hey, it's a blessing when you don't have kids, right? You don't have that stress. You don't have all those things going on. But, but really, it's a blessing to have children. So they're like, hey, is God really blessing us? And so there's all this pressure for them to do something, just to act and not wait upon God, right? My wife and I, we've been watching this documentary series on uh, the Roosevelt's, right? You got uh, Teddy Roosevelt. And then FDR, Franklin Delano, Roosevelt, you know, they're distant cousins. And so um, 
FDR, he was the 32nd president of the United States, and he was president between 1933 and when he died in 1945. And so, uh, you know, we certainly remember FDR being president during World War II. But then also, he was the president during, you know, as the nation was coming out of the Great Depression. And so, man, the Great Depression, like, what is, what was that? That so long ago, right? And so the Great Depression, right, it, you, you know, much of the country suffered some hard financial hardships, losing jobs, unemployment was, was, was ripped throughout the country. People even didn't have food to eat, were starving. Um, so many of the Americans, people, they would write letters to the President of the United States, to FDR. And actually, he got thousands of letters every single day. People explaining the situation that they're in, asking for help. You know, why were they writing the president letters, thousands of letters every day? Well, they were writing him because he could do something about it. They felt and believed that the president of the United States could do something about their plight. Same kind of situation with God, right? He's sovereign. He's always in control. So he can do something about it. That's why we pray. That's why we go to him with our concerns, with our needs, as well as our praises. So there's an understanding that God is really in control. But when it comes to certain things like, let's say, pregnancy, is, is God really in control? Let's say with whatever life situation you're in, you, know, you can make an entire list, right? Is God really in control? And the author, the author of this passage of Genesis, he's trying to point to that, hey, God really is in control. You see that throughout the Bible. Let's read just two quick passages. And uh, Proverbs, Proverbs 16, verse 33, you know, uh, it seems like, is God really in control of random things that happen? You know, just random events? Well, it says here, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. I mean, something simple as, I know we think about lot as in like rolling dive, but it's a little bit different for that cultural context. But the, the message is even something that looks seems random, God is in control. How about nature? Psalms 135, verses 6 through 7, it says this, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the ends of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rains, and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. God is in control of the nature, nature around us. God's in control of everything. That's what it means to be sovereign. He's and never, at any time, at any moment, is God never in control. <coughs> so you can trust God because he's sovereign. His plans can never be thwarted, although ours can be. My second point is this. You can trust God because he sees your situation. You can trust God because he sees your situation. God certainly wasn't unaware of what was going on in Abraham and Sarah's life. God certainly wasn't unaware that they were struggling with infertility. God certainly wasn't unaware that Hagar was mistreated, that she was receiving injustice. You know, so Hagar is mistreated by Abraham and Sarah, and so she flees and she's heading back towards Egypt, where she came from. She's trying to go back to the way that, you know, the life that she knew the people that she knows. And so on her way there, she comes by this well. And this is one of the many kind of repetitive themes throughout the Bible in the Old and New Testament, you know, the, the kind of like woman at the well narrative. And so she's at this well, 
and, and a stranger comes up to her, and, and a strange, the stranger knows her name. It says, you know, Hagar, servant of Sarai. Where have you come from and where are you going? Right? And so she's not even thrown off at all that is a total stranger knows her name. And so she just reveals to him her, her situation. This is the plight, this is the trouble that I'm going through. I am being mistreated. I'm suffering injustice. Right? And so the stranger says to her, hey, go back. I, I know what you're going through. Go back and I will bless you. This, this whole scene is, is, you know, got a big theological word here, you know, it's a theophany, you know. A theophany just means that God comes down to meet his people in physical form, right? You see that a lot going on through in, in the Old Testament. So God sees Hagar's situation, and so when Hagar finally realizes that, hey, this is not just some total stranger, this guy knows something, he, he, he sees, he's actually God, he... Hagar starts to name God. You know, that's something unique that doesn't happen throughout all of Scripture, actually. This is the only moment where somebody names God. And so she sees, you are the God of seeing. Another way you can say it, you know, potentially, is you are the God who sees me. That's very interesting. Here's Hagar. She's finding comfort in knowing the fact that God knows, that God sees her plight. You know, it means a lot when someone knows what you're going through. Even if they cannot change it or affect it one iota, just by the mere fact, hey, you know what's going on in my life. You know what I'm dealing with. You know the pressures that I'm under. I find comfort in that. You know, we've probably heard multiple times the uh, typical cliche and even sometimes we maybe even experience this cliche where, you know, let's say uh, a wife goes to her husband with a particular problem, with a particular issue, and the husband is not, like, really paying attention, but, you know, he throws out, hey, this is how this should ha happen, this is the solution to your issue, and uh, that solution could be very 100% accurate, but the, the wife is like, hey, uh, just time out, I'm, I'm here to tell you something just so you can listen, you know, I'm not looking for an answer, just, just, just listen to me. And, and that's kind of what's going on here. Uh, God knows what you're going through. That's so comforting, not only for us, and as we be brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, as we do acts of mercy out in the community, it goes a long way. It's very powerful for us just to give a listening ear. Just to take time, just listen to somebody's story. Just listen to what they're trying to say. Don't try to solve the problem and solve, give an answer immediately. Sometimes even as you listen, you'll find out, hey, what I was going to say before, that's not the right answer. I have a better answer for this person. I have a better scenario or situation for this person. Or maybe you don't have anything at all. Again, the, so powerful and good just to provide a listening ear. God knows your life. You never have to wonder about that. So the first point is this, that you can trust God because he's sovereign. The second point is that you can trust God because he knows your situation. And some people, to be honest, either here or outside of here, when they hear that, that doesn't really make things better. Actually, that frustrates the whole situation more. You know, <laughs> I'm going through X, Y, and Z. 
I've experienced trauma in my life. Actually, you don't even have to live long in this life to experience trauma. And you're telling me that the all-powerful God, the all-knowing God, did not do something about it or knew what was happening? I was supposed to find comfort in that? Get out of here. Get out of here. So while some of us do find comfort in that, I realize that other people, that just frustrates things, right? That kind of brings us to, to, to my third point, which is not only in this passage in chapter 16, but then throughout scripture. And that's this, that you can trust God because he loves you completely. He loves you completely. I, I'm sure you might be like, what? He loves me completely? All right, just hold on for a second. Right? It's very evident that throughout this story, God loves Abraham, he loves Sarah, he loves Hagar, he loves Ishmael, even when they royally mess things up, right? I mean, they royally mess, we royally mess things up. God still loves us. As a matter of fact, God still keeps his promise to Abraham and Sarah. He still promises them a son, even though they, you know, messed up on the promise, God is faithful. And, and, and even with their mistake, God promises to bless Ishmael, right? But uh, let's be real here. Let's be on a practical level. In my life, in your life, there are many things that cause anxiety, stress. We worry. We lose sleep. Even over our present circumstances, we lose sleep of, over the past. We lose sleep over what could be in the future, can we really trust God? We agonize over God's plan. We agonize not knowing God's plan. We agonize over jobs, marriages, relationships, kids, money, big decisions in life. The, the list goes on and on and on. What if God's plan is hard? What if God's plan doesn't look like the best for me or even for others? Can I trust God? What if you don't even know God's plan? Can I trust God? What if, you know, we have this phrase, hindsight is twenty twenty. What if after the fact, you look back on a particular situation and you're like, I still don't see God's purpose or plan in that, you know? I, what was the point? That uh, reminds me of a particular story. So, so my wife's parents... So my wife, she is the uh, oldest of her siblings, but she is not the firstborn. And so uh, her uh, older brother, Benjamin, uh, was, was born, had uh, cancer, and died at the age of two. And so you know, that's very hard for parents, not only to lose your kid, but to lose something that just totally seems like random cancer for a young two-year-old. They, they barely entered life, you know. Our son is about you know, a year and seven months or so, and can imagine dealing with cancer for him. And so many people came around them and said, you know, as they're going through this situation uh, with uh, Benjamin having cancer, that, hey, just trust God. God does not want your child to die. There's no way your God wants your child to die. Just trust God, believe in him, pray and follow him. Your son will be healed. Of course, that you know, didn't happen. And so, you know, fast forward a, a, a number of years, uh, you, know, you know, Becca's parents, 
well, Ben with Benjamin, you know, they were very involved with church. You know, you, you know, both of them went to seminary. I, I, Becca's dad was a uh, you know, elder in a church, and you know, fast forward at this point, you know, the, the thing about being missionaries overseas in Africa, right? Serving in Africa, and so you know, at this point, you know, now they have three kids. You know, and uh, should we move to Africa, serve God overseas? And one of the things they looked back to was that, hey, we were in America. You know, uh, the place where we had the best medicine and the best treatments for diseases, for infirmities, and we still couldn't save our son, Benjamin. So let's move to Africa, and we kind of trust God that he'll take care of our kids. And so that's where Becca and her siblings grew up in uh, West Togo and Africa, and her parents still live there. But if you were to ask them the same question, you know, looking back, do you see God's hand in, in throughout, throughout it all? They'll, they'll give you two answers. They'll say, yes, we see God's hand throughout the whole situation. We trust and believe our faith in God has grown since then. But then also, was it worth it? Was it worth losing our firstborn, Benjamin? Was it worth all that? Could God use some other means? And so just realizing life, we're going to have to struggle with those things. And struggling isn't bad. In fact, many times, obviously, in struggling, it strengthens your faith, strengthens you. But it's realized that sometimes in life, you will encounter and look back on things and say, hey, what's, what's the point of that? One of the promises that you can be pointed to that, that, that we often hear is this passage Romans 8.28, right? You know, what does Romans 8.28 say? It says, we know that we can, that in all things, God works for the good of those who trust and believe in him. We're called according to his purpose. You know, that's a promise that's often quoted. It's a true promise, and it's a good thing to place your hope in. That God works out all things, you know, all things means all things, good things, bad things, for your good, right? For your good and for the glory of God. Everything in life that happens is for your benefit. But then also just realize this, that in that promise, and all promises from Scripture, yes, it's good that we find hope in promises, but promises should always point you to the one who gave you the promise. Your faith and trust should always be in the one who gave that promise, and in God himself. Yes, a hope for X, Y, and Z may give you the strength to get through the day, to, to, to get through whatever circumstance you're in, but please realize that Who's the one who makes that promise? Who's the one who can bring that promise about? God. Jesus Christ. He's the one who makes that promise happen. So we should find our hope in him. You know, I, in the beginning of this message, in the beginning of this sermon, I talked about the, the meta-narrative of Scripture, right? What's the overarching story? And that story is about God redeeming, saving, restoring, purposing, his people, for his glory, right? And part of that story obviously includes Genesis chapter 16, Abraham and Sarah, and actually that promise of a child, you know, they eventually do have a kid. Guess what? This passage there at 86, Abraham isn't even, doesn't even get the kid until a number of years later, 100, right? It's not even immediate. He's 100 years, but they have a kid, Isaac. You got Isaac, then you got Jacob, 
Jacob, you go further down the line, you got David, further down the line, you have Jesus Christ, right? That's a human lineage of this promise, right? And that's kind of the climax of the meta-narrative, this, this overarching story. What is the climax? The climax is that Jesus Christ is life, death, burial, and resurrection. The, rede the redemption of his people through the cross, through his resurrection. That's kind of the climax of this story. And even though our stories are not written in scripture, we're part of that story. We're still part of this meta-narrative that's still going on and on and on from Genesis through Revelation. Let me just read an excerpt from you, uh, for you guys from the Nicene Creed. Uh, a creed is just kind of a, a statement of biblical truth uh, that's derived from the Bible, just, just, just truth orthodoxy that's derived from the Bible. And this is what it says. It says, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God of God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, for him all things were made, for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I don't know what situation you're going through in life. Even if I did, chances are I couldn't do anything about it. But we should always be pointing people to the one who does know your situation. Not only the present, but the future, as well as the past. We should always be pointing to Jesus Christ who knows your situation, who can do something about your situation, and who loves you thoroughly and completely. He loves you even more than your own parents, your siblings, your spouse, me, definitely more than me, anyone. Jesus Christ. Again, the main point of this message is trust the sovereign God who sees you. Do not trust your own limited abilities or understanding. I'll close with this kind of promise from Jesus Christ. This came from the mouth of Jesus Christ just a little while before he was crucified. The passage is John 12, 24 through 28. This is what Jesus says. He said this, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one would snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one.